We at Time to Rebuild would like to acknowledge that this podcast is produced on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. At the YMCA Rebuild, we're in the business of reducing recidivism in Victoria, and in no way do we condone criminal activity discussed in these episodes. We support victims of crime and are committed to creating a safer community. Hey guys, just a heads up that in this episode we do talk about some complex topics, including suicidal ideations. If you think this could cause distress in any way, please consider if this is the right episode for you. If you need to speak with someone, call Lifeline on 13 11. 14. I thought that people in prison were like a lot of the things they show you in the news. Like I was expecting a bunch of wild caged animals who would be growling, you know, holding onto the bars and like jeering at me. I was expecting hostility. And that first prison weekend in Texas, I went to four facilities. I went to women's and men's prisons. I went to death row, the whole thing. And I met human beings. You ask me the questions and I'll talk. I think you've been yelled at a few times, mate. That's a really good point that you make because we're, this is what this podcast is about: is giving out little sight. You're, you're gonna you're gonna do things that are compromised, maybe the values and morals that you were brought up with, or maybe they fall right in line with the values and morals that I was brought up having. Um, my focus is just focusing on what I'm gonna do when I get out, and all the stuff that you mightn't have thought of mm. that goes on in the prison. Yeah, like how many alarms get set off when you walk in with me, Cronin. Mark Wilson. Mick Cronin. So, Mark, already we've um, we've just changed a little bit of direction in the podcast because usually you introduce me for so um, So on going with that flow, going back to um, season two, um, we had uh, the pleasure of interviewing John Jackson um, from Hustle 2.0. And one of the great things about that interview, there was loads of great things about that interview, but one of the great things about it, the feedback that we got was that I actually did the intro, Mark. And I know you're very precious on that one because you like to do all the intros. And I know it was my first time ever, but I thought in the spirit of, you know, um, you know, what the people want and what they're asking for, that I might have a go at it again. Well, the feedback wasn't great, but <laughs> i got to let you fly. i got to let you flourish in a way. You only get better with practice, so keep going. I appreciate that. Well, all right. Well, look, I'm really, really excited. We're really excited for our, um, for our guest today. Um, it's Kat Hogue, the co-founder of Hustle 2.0. So, as the only girl on the high school wrestling team and as a Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighter, Kat mastered the art of breakfall, how to prevent injury when you get taken down. Breakfall proved to be a transferable skill in her career as a three-time entrepreneur disrupting the American prison industry. Kat works with gang leaders in the most notorious prisons, leading gang intervention programs. She has survived career-ending threats and devastating takedowns. Over 17 years, her efforts have led to 7,000 executives entrepreneurs and investors to volunteers, mentors and employers. 8,500 incarcerated men, women and youth have graduated from her programs. The programs reduce violence and have produced industry-leading recidivism rates of less than 15%. CAC created training, incubators and financing programs that have equipped 500 plus graduates to launch businesses. Seth Golden published her best-selling book, A Second Chance, for you, for me and for the rest of us. A powerful reflection on the struggles and triumphs of her journey and her graduates' journeys. 
Fast Company named Kat one of the 100 most creative people in business. And Forbes named her on 40 Women to Watch Over 40. And she's received the MDC Partners Humanitarian Award. Well, you know what, Kat? It doesn't mention that you sold steak knives in there. I did. I did. <laughs> I did sell steak knives for Cutco very successfully. Yes. Thanks, <laughs> thanks for adding that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for so much for being on a, um, on the podcast. It's so wonderful to have you. Um, and we're a big, you know, admirers of the work you do. And we had the pleasure of, of speaking with John Jackson, who we absolutely love and, and, uh, and I've been very lucky to, you know, um, connect with. Um, it's really interesting, just to give you a bit of background, in about 2019, I was applying for a, a scholarship and part of it, I had to do this development plan and I was like, it made me think about who I wanted to connect in the world with if I could, who could I learn more about? And um, that day, no word of a lie, someone came into my office and dropped a card on my table and it had written on it, Cat Hoke, and it had stepped to the line. You need to watch this video. And I'd never heard, honestly, I'd never heard of, of, um, of yourself or I never knew what it was. And I watched the video there and then. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. And from that point, then I actually put down on my development plan that you were someone that I wanted to connect to and, and, and that as well. Now, I tried uh, unsuccessfully to, uh, to try and uh, work out um, the time to meet. But I did, um, I did then with Hustle 2.0 um, send an email and um, was looking to try and connect with you. And then suddenly I did an alt MBA. And lo and behold, the lovely John Jackson appeared in the Alt-MBA with me. So that's a little bit of concept of how we actually then arrived to where we are today. It's taken a couple of years, but I'm so glad that we got there. Here we are. And, and I'm sorry to not be available earlier. I must have been stuck in prison. And you were busy changing the world there, so it's okay. <laughs> we'll, forgive, we'll forgive you on that one. But, Thank um, you. I want to jump straight into it. So in 2004, you were, um, I think, a director of an invest in investment uh, venture capital um, co- um, company in America, and you decided to go and um, visit some prisons in Texas. So I've got three parts of this question, but I think they're all going to lead into your answer anyway, flow into your answer. Like, if you can think back to then, like, what did you want to gain from that visit back then, them visits? What surprised you the most about them visits? And how did them visits and them prisons set you on a new career pathway? And to use a better word, a new mission in life. Uh, that, that's a really good question that I'm not sure that I have a great answer to. I can tell you that I didn't set out to go to prison. Um, when I was working in venture capital and private equity and I was, I was 26 years old and making more money than I ever needed, the, the question that I was trying to answer for myself in life was, What's a point of dying with a big fat pile of money when so many of the investment partners and very wealthy CEOs that I worked with seemed so dissatisfied in life? It was like they had it all, yet had almost nothing. And so I I would go around uh, asking the CEOs this question, if you died today, why would your life even matter? Like, what are you living for? That's a question I later ended up asking some gang leaders which we can uh, fast forward to that later. But um, I was asking that question because I wanted to find the answer for myself. And what I learned is from the wealthy people who did seem to have an answer that was satisfactory to them, it was because their life wasn't just about accumulating wealth. It was because they had used their skills, their network, their resources, and their time to make a real difference in the lives of other people. 
So essentially, it wasn't just about the success or the size of their business. It was about how they use their life to make a difference. And so then I wanted to do that. I was like, well, if just making a buck won't make me happy, how can I make a, a difference? I never in a million years thought that that would lead me to prison. Uh, in fact, I used to have a very hard heart about anything crime or prison related. Um, I am a victim of a sex crime myself. And when I was 12 years old, one of my close friends was brutally murdered by some other boys. So I thought that anyone who was in prison was the scum of the earth. I thought they could rot and die in that place. Tough on crime. And so when I got invited by a friend in New York to go to a Texas prison at the age of 26, my first words out of my mouth was, um, no, thank you. And she challenged me and she said, hasn't anyone ever given you a second chance? And I'm no angel. The world knows that now. And um, and haven't you ever had people who have mentored you uh, to, to to in life? And I said, of course. And and you know, I was looking for my purpose, looking for my calling. And I decided that the best way to find that purpose or that calling, which is advice that I give to people all the time now, when they say, how do you find that? I say, well, you've got to do something different. You can't just sit there and think that your calling is going to magically fall into your lap. And the only way you're going to do that is you've got to make room in your life. So you've got to cut some crap out. Whatever is not leading to great results or is a waste of time, whether it's scrolling for too many hours on social media or just watching TV shows. And then you have to make time and you need to say yes to things that are out of your comfort zone. Get uncomfortable. Um, otherwise, you're not going to find anything new. So um, I went to Romania and worked with HIV positive orphans before I ever came to prison. And that really opened my heart to injustice. I'd never seen injustice at that level. So when I got invited to prison, at first I thought no. When my friend challenged me, I changed my no to a yes. And I'm so grateful that I did. I could have never predicted the wild ride that I have been on for the last nearly 18 years now. And um, although it has caused great pain and suffering, it has also been the greatest privilege of my life to get to know my incarcerated brothers and sisters all over the world. I've, I've gotten to go into some international prisons as well. Um, so that was a long answer. Uh, how are we doing? Yeah, no, it's yeah, no, you keep going. It's great. All right. So what was I surprised by? I wrote down your three part question mm-hmm. here. So what what I was surprised by? Well, I in in my head uh thought that people in prison were like a lot of the things they show you in the news. Like I, I was expecting a bunch of wild caged animals who would be growling, you know, holding onto the bars and like jeering at me. I was expecting hostility. And that first prison weekend in Texas, I went to four facilities. I went to women's and men's prisons. I went to death row, the whole thing. And I met human beings. And maybe that sounds ridiculous that I was expecting something less than human. But, it, but I think my heart was so hardened um, that I became convicted over my own arrogance and my own, the way that I could look down on people like that, I felt ashamed of that. And I, I embraced this new idea that we, I mean, it's not a new idea, really, we all we all make terrible decisions. And 
Uh, I'll never forget the first person that I spoke with in prison. His name was Johnny. And when Johnny was, I think, eight or 10 years old, he was there as his grandfather murdered his father. And then Johnny got into a gang, sold drugs, and then did whatever he, you know, landed him in prison. And I met him when he was 18. And every person that I met, I was like, wow, if I had been raised in your circumstances, I... I may have landed there too. But what surprised me the most and really like set off this exciting light bulb for me was that as a uh, white girl raised in a nice middle class family, uh, I had no knowledge at all about gangs or drug rings. And when I got to prison and I started asking everyone, what are you in there for? And then they told me drug dealing. I was like, well, tell me about drug dealing. And when I started to realize immediately that not everyone in prison who has sold drugs, but so many people in prison who are involved in gang life or who have sold drugs are natural born hustlers or natural born entrepreneurs. And in my job in venture capital and investing, my whole life was about finding the most promising future entrepreneurs and investing money in them on behalf of my company. Well, here before me, I felt was America's most overlooked talent pool. Like these were people who clearly understand sales and profits and and innovative distribution strategies. And what I like to say is the one thing that they didn't really have down was their risk management strategies because they all got busted and ended up behind (laughs) bars. But I was like, what if these people transformed their hustle from illegal hustling skills into legal hustling skills? And I still... 100% believe in this premise because now that I've spent a lot more of my life behind bars, I've never actually done time myself, but I've (laughs) I've probably done more days in there than some of your listeners. And um, I when I see and have learned about how drugs and alcohol and all types of things are sold illegally in prison, these are valuable skills. And if you are still doing that stuff, but you are sick and tired of prison, which everyone I've ever met in prison tells me they're sick and tired of it. And what I say is, I can't tell. Look what you're still doing. Like if you're still selling that stuff and you're just, you know, setting yourself up to get more time, it must not be that bad. But if you are really sick and tired of having someone tell you what to do all day, why not learn about legal entrepreneurship? Because you can do it. And maybe you didn't grow up with mentors and and legal entrepreneurs around you. Maybe most of the entrepreneurs around you sold illegal things. And no wonder you ended up where you are. But now you're listening to this podcast and you have an opportunity to think about, is this where I belong? Is this where I want to stay? Is this a kind of entrepreneurial endeavor I want to continue investing in? Or do I want to earn my freedom and keep it? by selling legal things. And many people in prison have uh, feel down on themselves because usually prison is a dehumanizing experience. And in the process, you can start to lose some of your self-confidence or some of your hope. And you think, well, drugs is the only thing I've ever sold or done, so I won't amount to anything else. And I have worked with more than 8,500 people in prison. And I can tell you that any of you who is listening to this can amount to so much more. You are really capable. You have skills. 
you have these amazing gifts and skills that you probably are not even aware of. And I, I feel like I, I used to say this. I feel, I feel like when I go into prison, I have these like night vision goggles where I can see what is really going on. And I see <laughs> the beauty and the potential in you. And then I get to provide some tools and some programs, dust you off and give you a little confidence. And then boom, there you go. And the next thing we know, you're starting a legal business or getting a, a, a legal job and hiring other people and reconnecting with your family and keeping your freedom. And it's really freaking awesome. So that was another long answer. Yeah, it's a good answer. And it's really, I think, yeah, now it's not, it, it, you hit on so many points that we really, you know, in air programs here as well, we really, you know, align with like transferable skills is massive. You know, um, it's, it's one of the biggest things we talk about and talk to people here. I always remember, you know, um, when we were placing people into employment here, um, business would say, I don't want um, someone that's stolen cars or I don't want someone that's done this. And fraud, obviously, is, is a really one as well because sometimes the, the criminal mind is more dangerous than the criminal fist um, to businesses, you know. And, and we're going, well, why don't you want these people? These are the people exactly who you want, you know. But as you mentioned, you just got to make them use what their gifts are for positive and not negative, which they've never been shown before. So you, you hit on an amazing point that we, we really, really do align with as well. So... Um, I, I can I make I, I just want to jump in. I don't ha we don't have to have anyone transfer their skills, right? Anyone who's listening mm. to this, if you don't want to transfer your skills to legal stuff, if you want to stay there, that is a, that's your choice. And I used to actually, I really used to try to convince people to change, and I've stopped doing that uh, yeah. because it doesn't work. If you don't want it, you're not gonna you're not gonna have it, and we're all wasting our time or airways or whatever we're doing here. Um, if you want it, though, you can have it. You can do it. But if you don't want to change, that is okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I tell absolutely. people all the time. It's all right. If prison is working out for you, if smoking crack or whatever you're smoking is working out just fine for you, then I mean, <laughs> I'm not. Go don't ahead. let me get in the way. Yeah. It's a great point yeah. because I think we meet people at different stages of their life as well. You know, they may not want yeah. to change it at a certain age, but I think eventually the penny drops with a lot of people. But uh, yeah, well, the, and this maybe maybe put a pin in this one for later. But we just wrote a course in Hustle Two Point on stages of change and what makes us unready to change versus when we start the journey. So I'd love to talk about that, but I don't want to derail whatever you were going to ask. So No, no, no. We can definitely get to that later as well because it's a really important point. It's really important about the people that we work with. And you make a really great point. Yeah, Some people you know, are quite happy doing that. And it all depends. We used to work with a lot of young people um, in, and I think it's a difficult age bracket. We were working with the 15 and, and younger. Like A lot of these young people were fine. They were fine doing what they wanted to do. That was where their life was at. They were happy to be around their peers in the custodial centers and they were happy to continue their criminal activity at that stage right. of their life. And to try and force that was never going to work. So you're right. And, and it does happen at people different stages where you can see, yeah, you know what? I'm a bit tired of this. Maybe I can, maybe now I can, you know, accept that support and maybe now I can kind of do something. I'm really interested, Kat, like, do you feel that because of who you are, you go into a prison and there's that like non- um, confronting and so forth you're able to cut through stuff so it seems like you're able to cut through a lot of stuff and get to you know your programs and, and get to the people in there that you want to help do you think that you know wh why is that do you, do you think why may, am I able to get through 
to people. Yeah, like because a lot of people, a lot of programs, a lot of people like, you know, prisons do programs and not always successful. Yeah, yeah. We have experience yeah. in it. And here's this, here's this lady that comes in from this background and then suddenly starts saying, yeah. you know what? I can see you and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put these programs in and I want you to listen to me. So yeah, what, yeah. What, why listen to well, you? Well, so, okay. So the first thing I do, since, since uh, your listeners probably can't see what I look like, but I'm 44 years old, I'm white, 5'9", and I wear vintage clothing, and I'm, like, fairly eccentric in how I dress, I would say. And so when I walk into a prison, I'll say, hey... Uh, you all, you, you don't, you don't, uh, you don't like being judged, right? And they'll say, of course not. And I'll say, all right, well then stop judging me for what I look like right now. Hear me out first. Okay. And then, and then, uh, sometimes like, you know, sometimes when I go into a maximum security prison or I work in a lot of solitary confinement environments and the prison officials will like try to freak me out about how terrible the guys are or whatever. So I'll say to them, I was, I'll be like, Hey, are you guys a bunch of like wild crazy killers are you all like wait thinking about how you're gonna kill me right now or whatever and they'll go no no and i'll be like all right i didn't think so you know that's what your reputation is but i can see past your reputation so um i i mean i make a few jokes like that but really um okay well then the other thing that i do is i tell them look i'm here on your turf this is your this is your gym i don't live here but you got a pass to come here today and you don't have to be here today. I know in prison, there are a lot of things that you have to do, but you don't have to be here and listen to me talk. So at any point, if you don't want to be here, you get to leave. But if you want to stay, I have some rules of engagement. And I actually, I read them aloud. I say, you get to consider these, but if you want to stay, you're going to have to stand up and you're going to have to repeat them and say them like you mean them. Like, I will fully participate. I will be respectful of everyone in this room. I will not make jokes. I will not side talk. And then they all stand up. Usually there's like a hundred tough looking guys or whatever. And there's always some, so the first one is I will fully participate. And they stand up and they're like, they're kind of annoyed that I'm making them do this. So they'll stand up and they'll go, I will fully participate. I'll call out one of them. I'll be like, are you a man of your word? You're already lying. You're saying uh, you will fully participate. You're already like half butt participating. You know, like you're not even really saying it. So say it again, <laughs> like, you know, like you mean it. And then when they're like, holy crap, who is this lady who's like calling me out? And like, I'm, I guess I'm a little bit scary like that, but I care about them. And I'm like, well, we could have a lame, boring day today and I could only show up halfway or we could have an awesome day. What kind of day do you want to have? So choice choice is everything and many people in prison don't have choice so providing choice and then if you don't want to be here just leave you won't offend me i'm fine with that i'd rather stay here with five guys who care they usually most of them end up staying but then what i really do is i share my story and um i might i might look like i'm fancy or weird um and i i have made really bad decisions in my life which i'm happy to share here too not happy to but you know willing to and I also uh, come from uh, past with a lot of trauma and it doesn't usually show on my face and people are surprised, but then they're like, oh, wow, we actually have a little bit more in common than we would think. So that's how we break bread. Stick with us. We'll be back after this short ad. <laughs> Mick, what are you wearing? What do you mean? What am I wearing? What are you laughing at? I'm wearing my Santa Cruz gear. <laughs> you don't skate. What do you mean I don't skate? I've always been skating, mate. I was born to skate. I've been skating for years. In fact, I've been on a scooter and everything, mate. <laughs> I'm not buying that. Well, look, you might be buying that, mate. But i tell you what you should be buying. YMCA Rebuild are selling skate ramps right now made by the young people in prison, and they are quality. 
Skate ramps. Skate ramps, man. If you're like me, that can do all the jumps, can do everything, but just doesn't have a ramp or a space <laughs> in his back garden, this is what you need right now. A couple of pop shove it, so I. Mate, I can pop shove it. I can do whatever you want, mate. Kick flip? Kick flip, tail whip, you name it. I'm your man. <laughs> so go to www.ymcarebuild.org.au and get yourself a skate ramp. What a Christmas present. You know, your book is Second Chance. You know, yep. you do, you, you know, you are not just a person who um, comes in and speaks from something, you speak from experience and you speak from someone who's a, who has received a, a second chance or maybe more, you know? Um, um, just a few. Just, just a, a few. few. Well, look at, you know, I think everyone <laughs> just has... Just a few you know, no, thousand. <laughs> no, no one's immune to some wrong decisions and so forth. I think we're now, like, we celebrate the imperfections sometimes as well. Like, it's not, it's not, no one's perfect and no one, like, we, we certainly don't go that way in how we talk to people. We've all made mistakes as well. But, like, just touching on that, and as I say, I know you're willing to speak about it. We don't have to spend as much, as much time, as little time on it as you want because we very much speak in this podcast and what we do into where solutions and where people are moving forward. But sometimes to move forward, you know, there is things that, you know, you have to yeah, do yeah. within your past. Um, so you wrote the book Second Chance and, and obviously, um, you know, you had this expiring kind of career where you were just kicking down walls and amazing goals and doing amazing work and changing the how prison systems, like I know with your, um, your PEP program and in the five ventures and so forth, you would just absolutely came out of nowhere really and just started just changing how programs were done in prisons and so forth and um, can you talk us through a little bit about where the, how the second chance book obviously where it came from as well what sure. you wrote about and how you've actually you know showed great resilience and bounce back to come back to where you are okay um i'm gonna i'm gonna give a a quick like drive-by on on my stuff because i sometimes my stuff is interesting but i'd rather talk i'll address it and then I want to talk about stuff that may be more, even more re- directly relevant or take-home value for the audience that's listening yeah, to us. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So I was 26, blonde at the time, naive as could be, thought all things were possible, you know, and I jumped ship from my fancy New York job, moved out to Texas, started prison entrepreneurship program, grew that to be a statewide thing in Texas. And we had a recidivism rate of less than 5%. And I became known in the media as like this prison angel, a reputation that I couldn't live up live up to. And I was married at the time. And I was living in a very Christian community. And the one thing that I said that I would never be in life was a divorced woman. Like that was a stigma I did not want. Well, nine years into marriage, I am served with divorce papers And I feel uh, so ashamed. I feel like such a failure. And I attempt to keep my divorce a secret from this Christian community. My other community consisted of people who had been released from prison. So these were graduates of the program. They were guys who had gotten out. And um, I knew their flaws. They knew many of mine. And I knew that they would accept me with one more flaw. So I confided my divorce and people who had been released from prison. And then in the process, I crossed boundaries and I had relationships with some of them. And I knew better. I didn't do anything that was against the law. But I knew that if Texas prison officials found out about my choices, that they would like literally see it as sleeping with the enemy. And sure enough, they found out and I admitted to the truth. And then they issued an ultimatum and they said, either you resign from PEP or we are going to shut it down statewide. And my resignation scandal 
ended up making uh, headlines, state news, national news, and then even global news. I couldn't believe how much people cared about it. I couldn't believe online what people wrote and how they embellished the story and made it a lot more exciting than even what it was. Um, And when I read what people wrote about me online, and not only that, it was like PEP was my everything. I had given all my money to it. Like it was my greatest passion, watching incarcerated people win, graduate, reconnect with family, start their businesses. Like I lived for this. So I felt like my baby was gone. And I, I thought I thought I had ruined my calling and ruined my life. And I thought I had no more purpose in life. And in Houston, I lived in a high-rise building. And I would go out to the balcony. And I hated my guts so bad for my decisions. And I would dangle myself over the edge of that balcony. And go out an extra inch and an extra inch a little more dangerously each time. Fantasizing about the outcome of maybe another half an inch. I was sobbing and I didn't want to live. And I don't know if anyone can relate to making a really bad decision in your life and then just wanting to, you know, disappear or to be put out of your misery. And what I tell people now is that if I had taken my own life, I, which was like a fantasy of mine, um, that would have been the ultimate way of canceling myself. Like many of us are scared of getting canceled by society. So I say that, you know, we cancel ourselves all the time, not just by taking our lives, but by saying, oh, I'll never do it again. So I could have said that was the end of my career. That was the end of my life or whatever. But what, what kept me living during those moments was reliving those graduations and seeing our fathers reconnect with their children and saying, I love you, baby. I will never leave you again. And then we built all the solutions, the halfway houses, the jobs, the everything so that they would succeed and seeing our guys live up to their p- potential. And I knew that I had these God-given abilities and I still had so many people who believed in me. But, you know, when Texas forced my resignation, I thought it was all over. I had a hard time seeing above the clouds. And maybe some of your incarcerated listeners right now can relate to that. Like you, you are being, you are confined for a bad choice that you probably made and you might feel like your life is over. And that's because we have a hard time seeing above the clouds. Well, I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by some people who loved me through my time and said, Kat, you have value beyond what you have done. And God is certainly not done with you. And if you want to do this again, you don't have to do it again. But if you want to, we have your back. And that was a big advantage that I have over some people in prison who don't have positive mentors and role models. And even if you don't have positive mentors and role models right now, you have this podcast that Mick and Mark are providing to you. You have, you have books that you can read. You have autobiographies that you can read. And you can know that so many people who have done great things in this world, who have found their purpose, who have gone before you, have been in really horrific, dark places. So I, I wouldn't say that I got back on my feet before I started organization number two, which was Defy Ventures. I would tell you that I still hated my guts. I had the lowest self-esteem of my life. I was crying every single day. But I believed in 
something more than just me. And when I started Defy, which was also a, a nonprofit, I had to raise money from investors and donors. And I would go to those meetings and I was like, here I am. I have a dream again. And yes, I just screwed up and made these decisions. And I don't know if wardens will ever trust me again, or I don't know what will, you know, please give me all your money. And asking people to help me and give me all their money when I didn't even believe in myself, that was a really hard thing to do. I was doubting myself all the time. But every day I had to make a choice. Am I going to make this all about me and how I feel about myself and what are these people saying or thinking about how are they judging me? Or am I going to have the courage to get over myself so that I can show up and love and serve my incarcerated brothers and sisters who are counting on me? When Texas canceled my ability to work in their prison system, I thought it was over. And so many of us, when we screw up, we think my life is over. It's the end. But what I realized in the process is, Texas, did they cancel my ability to work in other prison systems, in in jails? Did they cancel my ability at redemption or my ability to forgive myself or to get forgiveness? No, the only person who can cancel all of that is me. So I started Defy, and over the next nine years, I led Defy to be a national, amazing organization serving in jails and prisons all over the U.S., and I got to do some international stuff, too. And um, it was a uh, very beautiful, exceptionally difficult journey. And in my career, I've now raised nearly $30 million in funds to fund the work. And we graduated thousands of people and served thousands of their family members who are so freaking proud of their moms and dads when they graduate, or their sons when they graduate from the program. And we recruited all these CEOs and executives. And you know what? To this day, I'm like, can you believe I came this close to giving up on myself? Or can you believe I came this close to like not even being so self-absorbed in my own pain and misery or what other people thought about me that I didn't start this organization that did so much good. And I would, everyone who's listening to this, I would ask you to think about that. When do you get so absorbed and what are people going to say about my crime or what are people going to say or think about me that you, you cancel yourself, you mentally or spiritually incarcerate yourself as a result of that. So anyway, um, Defy became this beautiful beast. And um, uh, as we gained a lot of uh, fame, we were written about all over the world and growing really well. Um, And uh, the bigger that Defy grew, it wasn't all roses. Uh, Defy and I got this very big target on us as well. And it all came to a head three years ago um, when I faced a whole slew of allegations against Defy and against me. And uh, the attacker said to my board that if he was not given what he wanted, that he would make allegations known publicly. And when my board told him where he could take his allegations, he uh, he did his thing with his allegations, and uh, my board hired a a law firm to run a very thorough investigation. Um, and thankfully, Defy was vindicated of any wrongdoing. And as for me, 
uh, I was deemed to be a reputational risk. And in what then became the saddest moment of my life, I resigned again in another extremely public scandal, a national scandal. And um, I, again, questioned my life. I didn't want to live. Um, I had given everything, again, my money, my time, my, my, my very best. And I felt like, you know... I've tried pretty hard in this industry. I've tried very, I've given everything I have and maybe I've just lived long enough. Maybe I've done my good on this earth. Here we go again. I had just published this book and how to recover from scandal and crisis and forgiveness and all that. And um, the book and the scandal hit the media at the same time, actually. And uh, in not so much of a coincidence, but anyway, um, you know, Defy, as as we were going through this investigation, Defy was burning down to the ground. And Defy is making it now, uh, has come back, and PEP is making it great too. And I'm so grateful that they have thrived dis- despite their very rough rides. But while Defy was burning down to the ground, um, I was so angry. I was so hurt. I just, cause, but you know what really was killing me was that the dreams of my incarcerated brothers and sisters and their families' dreams were burning down to the ground as well because so many people had just been praying for a second chance, wanted nothing more than that, and here it was, and they saw it disappearing. And Seth Godin, who published my book, was my mentor, and he said to me, Kat, right now you have a choice. And I'm I'm paraphrasing his words, and I'm probably going to butcher them a little bit, but he said... He said, you have a choice right now because I wanted to fight and like write the record and say my piece and, you know, get, get, I wanted to, well, you know, and I'm sure that many, many of our uh, listeners here can relate to this, right? You, you want to state a case for a defense case for yourself. And I want to state one right now, actually, I can tell that in me. And, but he said, you have a choice. You can stay angry and you can fight for yourself. Or you can choose to forgive and move forward so that you can show up for the people who are counting on you. I'm going to say that one more time because it's one of the most important things I've ever learned in my life. Kat, you can stay angry and choose to fight for yourself or you can choose to forgive and move forward so that you can show up for the people who are counting on you. And... I wanted to fight for myself and I wanted to cling on to old things. And um, I find this with so many friends who are like, who are going through divorce, you know, they want to, they want to be right and they want to keep fighting. Well, at whose detriment, how are your kids or your family getting torn up by this? It is very hard to um, forgive or to walk away from something when you know that you could get more money or you could have write the record. Um, well, I follow that advice because it was the advice in my book. And I, am I, am I going off too, too uh, long right now on this question? Okay. I want to talk about forgiveness for a second then, because um, this is probably the topic that I'm most passionate about in my life and others' lives and in the lives of incarcerated people. So, um, 
most of our incarcerated people have a really hard time forgiving themselves for what they did, and they rot in shame. And what I say, shame is not good for any of us. Shame is what is kicking us while we're down. We hate it when, or I say we, because I feel like I'm right there with you, but we hate it when when a cop or anybody else talks bad to us. But think about the way that we talk to ourselves in our own heads. Would we let anybody talk to way, to us the way that we speak to ourselves? I doubt it. They would get punched in the face. So don't punch yourself in the face, but maybe punch that voice out of your head. Because that shame doesn't help. It doesn't make you better. It makes you worse. It makes you more likely to self-sabotage. It makes you more likely to hate your guts and to use drugs or to do whatever you and and use whatever negative coping skill you go to. And it keeps you down. It keeps you locked up. Even if you get your physical freedom, your shame will keep you not living your best life. So how do we, how do we get rid of shame? Well, it's not easy because shame is super sticky. We do it by forgiving ourselves and forgiveness I don't think it's something that we can really earn. It's not usually something we deserve. Like the mistakes, the bad decisions that I made in Texas with my scandal there, I can't take them away. No one can undo the past. We have all made bad decisions that we hate. Okay, I can keep beating myself up for for that, or I can choose to learn from it. I can recycle those lessons. And I can choose forgiveness, even though I may not deserve it, can't earn it, whatever. Forgiveness is not a feeling. And here's people say, oh, Kat, but forgiveness is so difficult. Yeah, it is. You know what, though? It's so simple. And here's what it sounds like. I choose to forgive me. I choose to forgive myself. I choose it. And say it over and over again. And at first when people do this, usually if I was with you in person right now while you're listening to this, I would like try to make you do it right here. I just say, try it on. If you hate if you hate the peace that for, comes with forgiveness, you can always revert back to, you know, whatever hatred, self-hatred, anxiety, revenge, whatever feelings you have in your heart. You can go right back to that in five minutes by triple dog dare you to try on forgiveness for a minute. See how it makes you feel. And then and then people, are they try it on once. All right, fine. I forgive me. I forgive me. No, say it like you mean it. And then they're like, well, it still doesn't feel real. I say, yeah, I know. Because if you're trying to reverse decades of unforgiveness... You think saying it once is going to work? No, we're, our heads are stubborn. So the next time that your brain tells you how you suck, tell your brain where it can take itself and say, I choose to forgive me. And then surround yourselves, yourself with a community of other people who forgive you too and remind you to forgive yourself. So anyway, this attacker, this guy who um, made up these allegations, I chose to forgive him. And so this forgiveness concept applies to uh, not just ourselves, but other people as well. He didn't ask for my forgiveness. He sure as hell didn't earn it. But you know what? When we hate the guts of somebody who screwed us over, who does that hurt? Do you think that guy is hurt by the hatred in my heart? No, he's probably never thought about me again. He's probably, I don't know what he's doing right now. Whoever you're hating who did something to you when you were five years old or when your father abandoned you or whatever it was, that hatred is all yours. So if you love walking around with a 10-pound ball of hatred stuck in your heart that is leading all of your relationships, and then you wonder, oh, why do I just sometimes blow up and go off on people? I wonder why. It's because you choose to harbor that hatred. So if if that hatred, the anxiety, the revenge, the depression, the whatever is serving you well in your life, keep it. 
and don't forgive yourself and don't forgive anybody else. Stay angry and fight for yourself. But if you are sick and tired of being locked up, the best thing you can do is unlock yourself emotionally and spiritually. And it sounds like this. I forgive him. I choose to forgive him. I forgive him for my sake. So that's what I did. I forgave that guy. I forgave my board. And one week later, I uh, went up to Pelican Bay State Prison, which is a super max in California, and where they have a huge solitary confinement place. And I uh, walked into the gym, and there were 100 guys standing in that gym. And I was sobbing, like bawling my eyes out. And most of these guys had been incarcerated as teenagers, given life sentences, And I told them how hopeless I was, how my life was over, you know, because I was having a hard time getting over me. It was only one week later. And they were in the middle of their Defy program. And I was like, I don't have any money. I can't get you through the program. I don't know what to do. And one guy stood up after another and they said, Kat, please don't give up on us. We need you. Other people, other people have given up on us. Please, please be strong for our sake. And as I looked my brothers in the eye, there I was again, facing that same choice that I still face every single day. I could cancel my life, I could cancel my potential, or I could choose to be courageous. And some people say, oh, you're a fearless leader. That's so not true. I'm, I am so scared. I am such a chicken all the time. I have fear all the time. That fear is natural to me. But I just choose to not let that fear in my heart make my decisions. So I said, okay, all right. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know how I'm going to get you to graduation. I don't know how I'm going to start anything new. I don't know how I'm going to live with myself with my reputation that I hate. But I'm going to, I'll try. That's all I can do. You have my word. And hustle to when I was born. Amazing. It's, uh, yeah, it was speaking about forgiveness um, was that like, the longest you've ever had anyone speak without a question? I, in between? I'm going to, I'm going to go with that cat and say it is, yeah, I, I am going to say it is, but you know what? We, we, yeah, we sat here and just listened because it was just, it was, it was such a fascinating, you passed oh. such a fascinating journey from, from where, at where, you know, you're at your lowest to where it's all kind of works. So it was, it was a record for our listeners and for yeah. ourselves, but, um, yeah. but it was, a, you know what? It was, it was a great record because it was, it was a fascinating you. insight you gave thank us. You, so thank, thank you. you. For and thank you for sharing it. Now you can ask a few questions. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Um, I was going to say, I was like, I, I love that um, all about forgiveness. And me and Mick were lucky enough um, mm. to be invited into one of your forgiveness sessions. Um, that was a few months ago now. Uh, and we walked away. I walked in. I, I, I joined that session thinking, oh, I don't, I don't really, like with forgiveness, I'm like a forgiving person and everything like that. And then the way you framed it, you know, about forgiving yourself and you really made us think, um, you know, and dig deep. And I'll, I'll remember, and you said, and there's no joking as well when you're doing this. And that's one of my reactions is, you know, when I can't think of something or I want to kind of lighten the mood, I'll, I'll tend to go to humor. But with you saying that, it made me actually stop, pause and you know, throughout that session, I walked away from it and Mick was the same. We had a conversation afterwards that I'm like, I was carrying around a lot of guilt, 
um, on myself um, that I I wasn't aware of. And after that, I was saying I felt like 20 kilograms lighter. There was just a weight carried off my shoulders that I didn't know I was carrying around. And I'm sure that's I'm sure like a lot of people, a lot of people listening um, would would have be have the same experience. Um, but that was a it was a really yeah. powerful powerful session. Mm. Yeah, it was. Thank you. It was amazing. Yeah, a lot of people say uh, thanks a lot for making me remember this thing that I had forgotten. And what I tell them is, you didn't forget that your dad walked out on your life when you were two years old. You didn't forget that. You may try to tuck that away. Um, and you may be successful in putting that away. And you don't ever have to look at that again if you don't want to. And you may be like, well, I don't care. I didn't even need my dad. Look, I, we, my mom and I did it without him. Um, and that may be true. But maybe out of that, you formed some self-limiting beliefs that people will walk out on you in your life. You can't trust anyone or you can't trust men or you can't, you know, or that you're all alone. You need to fend for yourself. And maybe you go through your next relationship with someone that way. Um, who knows how it's impacting you, but the way that trauma takes this deep root in our hearts and then can manifest itself later in actions that surprise us. Hmm. So it's a choice. It's a choice to take a look back at old stuff and it's never fun. Mm. No, but I'm glad to not. hear you are 20 pounds lighter. Yeah. <laughs> Don't look it, but I definitely feel it. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's a good it's a good point that you make as well. Like, yeah, it um, you carry it with you, and sometimes until you face it, or until you're actually put on the spot to face it, you don't actually you don't actually think about it, or you don't talk yourself through it. And then once you start saying the words and start, you know, hear yourself what you're saying, and start going, yeah, this is it's not like these words are connected to me. This is my feelings. This is what I'm saying, and yeah. and I felt this, but I didn't realize it until um, you know, this person is kind of you know pushed me into talking about it and it was an incredible um yeah it was an incredible experience that we had um so thank you for that as well um i want to talk quickly about like we've got you know um some time left i wanted to really you know move forward a little bit to, to hustle 2.0 and and you know we're you know you know doing some amazing work um as well and i'd say we're really lucky to you now have a good connection with john and you know i see all the work that he's doing as well and i see what you're doing as well but um it'd be great for our listeners if you could just tell us a little bit you know about hustle 2.0 um you know where it's at now and um, because you know you've obviously built it up and it's 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 building you know and um, oh, yeah yeah so yeah if you'd be really good if you could share what it, what you're aiming to do with that and um you know what it aims to do and where it's at at the moment sure uh, so three years ago, you know, when I went back to Pelican Bay, after that, I, I moved out to Pelican Bay. And uh, every day, because in, in California, that's where like the it's like the headquarters for the top gang leaders in the state of California. And at least in the U.S., many prison systems are really run by gangs. And um, so I thought might as well go to headquarters and talk to leadership there to see if they. So I went up to the I, I, I at Pelican Bay. Uh, I gathered um, the leaders of uh, across the gangs in California, and um, these are these are guys. They're they're pretty old, and they're they're terrifying to most people. But I'm not very scared of their big long mustaches and muscles or whatever. Um, and I just said to them, "Hey guys, I know that you're like you know these big 
you know, big homies out here. Uh, but uh, if you died today, why would your life matter? That same question, you know? And I said like, okay, you guys have grandkids. Who do you want? How do you want their your them to refer to their pop pop as the leader of the Mexican mafia or the Crips or the whatever, like that someone who's like executed and called the murders of X number of people. Is that what you want? Or do you have, do you have desire to be known for more than a scary rap sheet? And without fail, every one of these guys totally has a desire more than just a desire, but now like a commitment to be known for something good. I believe that we all do. But you know what? Some of these guys were never given a chance. Some of these guys, no one ever believed in them. And it's not surprising that they rose through the ranks and their criminal organizations. But I said, okay, well, uh, hopefully third time's a charm here with my organizations. I'm starting, I, I hope that this is my last rodeo. What do you want to call it? You want to be, you want to be like my, you want to be my co-authors? Because um, I am, I am a white lady and you have more cred than I do. So how about if I leverage your cred? And uh, you want to you want to write some good stuff, some positive stuff. And uh, it was amazing to see that they did. And I said, all right, well, what do you want to call this thing? So we give them a name survey and they came up with Hustle 2.0, a new and improved kind of hustle, not just entrepreneurship, but holistic hustle A 2.0 life. 2.0 means like new and improved. So in a new, improved version of ourselves. And I said, all right, what do you want the slogan to be? And they said, hustle, grind and invest yo time. Y-O, yo time. <laughs> and uh, so I was like, great. And then the other thing that I did is I went to the head of the parole board and I went to some of the most hardcore prosecutors who uh, prosecute to get the toughest sentences and to cops. I went to people, uh, you know, on the other side and I said, hey, if there was such a thing as rehabilitation, what would it look like? What is missing in the picture right now? Like, what do you need to see? What What do these people keep doing that makes you so excited to give them life sentences? So what can I build out that would actually work? So I engaged them in this solution as well. And uh, now, three years later, we have authored more than 5,000 pages of curriculum we went from being in one to two California prisons to now in 165 jails and prisons in the country in less than three years. We have a correspondence program. Uh, it starts with something called the preseason. We have 12 uh, topics ranging from entrepreneurship to healthy relationships to leadership and management to criminal thinking to being, being a part of the solution instead of being part of the problem. And uh, we have some real meat and potatoes in there. And for any criminal correctional audience uh, listening here, we address all the criminogenic needs and the, you know, those factors. Like there's really serious stuff in here. We work with trauma experts to make sure that our stuff is trauma responsive and evidence based. But what is really cool and special about us is that it's written in the language of my incarcerated peers. It's written by them. It's filled with stories of people in prison, people out of prison. And it's not just success stories. Like right now, we've been writing a story of one of our graduates who did so awesome inside got out and he's back on meth. And he wrote, he wrote up his story about what has been leading to his uh, repeated behavior here. 
And so we learn from each other's lessons in a non-judgmental way. There's tons of jokes in the curriculum. We have two characters. One is a honey badger. Everybody wants to be like the awesome honey badger. And uh, nobody wants to be like Sluggo D. Sloth. Sluggo is, uh, you know, probably your <laughs> celly. He smells really bad. He's lazy. He uses a, a rolled up stick to change the TV channels. And we have lots of jokes in there. We have crossword puzzles, mazes, mazes and recipes. And what happens is people all over the country who normally hate programming because it's written in these very tact or, you know, these scientific type of terms, you don't need a big fancy education to read our stuff, but it's, it's legit. It gets people to really transform and look at their behaviors. And it's, we do it in a non-judgmental way. So we really tell them if you don't want to change something, you don't need to. That's cool. If, if your life is working out just fine for you, then give this book to your celly. Um, there, it's filled with no judgment quizzes where you get to take a look and our, our mavericks, so we call them mavericks, our participants, and they say these no judgment quizzes, it's like looking in the mirror. What do you see? Do you like it? Okay, great. Do you want to change something? All right, we got, we got a couple tools for you on how to get there. So uh, our program is rolled out all over, men, women, and youth. But what I love is that correctional uh, systems are using this largely in their restrictive housing, like their solitary confinement units and their high security facilities, because a lot of times people in there have less hope and don't want to program as much and uh, don't want to touch some of these uh, psychological clinical programs. And then they get ours and they like, you know, read it cover to cover because it's fun. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So, and it's the best work I've ever gotten to do. I absolutely love it because my co-authors are incarcerated men and women. It's it's so cool. Yeah. Mm. That's what I love about it as well is the co-authors. And, and I've read a little bit of, um, um, you know, some of the work that you do and, and what Hustle 2.0 and I've seen a little bit about it as well. But what's fascinating about it as well, Kat, is... I I know it's been referred to as like a lifestyle. Hustle 2.0 is a lifestyle. And I know sometimes it's, it, it you know, that some of these, um, some of the people that you serve are actually, you know, it's now beginning to break into a little bit of their, you know, when they're going for parole or they're going for whatever that, you know, what they're doing in Hustle 2.0, like these correctional boards are actually mentioning Hustle 2.0 and it's giving yeah. them some credit of what they're doing because they're going, oh, you're doing that program and they're reading it and they're seeing yeah. it, which has got to be something that's, amazing you must be amazingly proud of because it would be i don't believe that would have always been the case correct me if i'm wrong for many years that they would be talking about the programs in in these parole hearings and they could form part of their you know story and journey to to, to yes. the community the parole board i actually get to present to the whole california parole board next week we've presented at the largest correctional conference in america and now it's awesome to see correctional leaders are talking about sluggo, but because they <laughs> see that, you know, peer to peer programming, peer to peer language and our approach is really effective. So we give people new coping skills, new ways to deal with trauma. Like a, it, it, it's, uh, we, we engage people. So it's nice. And, and, um, if you want to talk about stages of change, I would love to tell you what I've just learned about that. It's yeah. it, well, it's your time at the moment. Like, well, I'm, I've got a couple of quick questions that we want to finish with, but you're good. So yeah, yeah. let's go. Yeah. If you're good, let's go. Kat. We'd okay. love to hear it. Yeah. Well, I, I just want to share this briefly because we just, uh, finished a course on this. It's a theory called stages of change. And this was initially invented 
by people who are trying to help uh, smokers to come up with a a framework if you want to stop smoking, but it can apply to anything in life. And I'm obsessed with this right now. So here's the idea. Think right now before I explain it of one thing that you have thought about changing in your life, or maybe you haven't really thought about changing it, but somebody else tells you it's a problem and they want you to change it. So anything from like using violence to biting your nails to losing five pounds to getting up five minutes earlier or working out for three times a week or whatever, any change that you would think about making, okay? Or that somebody else has, maybe your doctor told you you needed to change your habits. Okay. So with that change, any possible change, this theory basically says that we are all somewhere on the spectrum of changing, but there are, there are these five stages. So I'll walk you through them. So you can think about with this particular change, which of these buckets are you in, okay? So the first one is pre-contemplation. Basically, that pre-contemplation means I'm not thinking about it. I don't care what problem. Actually, you're the freaking problem. There is no problem. You blame everybody else. Okay. So um, then there's contemplation. Contemplation is like, yeah, okay, this is a problem. I want to change. I'm going to change. And here's how I could change. And maybe you even dabble in change. But then you're like, but if I change, then I'm going to lose all of this stuff. Like if I stop eating chocolate cake every day, then what else am I ever going to eat? And like, how am I going to do it when chocolate cake is in front of me? So you're wavering. It's like the angel and the devil, you know, the two voices in your head. So you're thinking about it. Um, A lot of people stay stuck in contemplation forever or years on it. They never they never get out of contemplation. Okay, the next stage after that is preparation. So preparation is you're like, okay, I'm sick and tired of prison, or I'm sick and tired of being overweight, or whatever it is, so I'm going to do this. And so you 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 decide that you're in, but you haven't made the, the change yet. Uh, but you start taking the steps to prepare for the change. So if I want to lose weight, maybe this is like, okay, I sign up for the gym. Okay, that's preparation. I've like committed, but I haven't hit the gym yet. And signing up for the gym is really different than hitting the arm farm, as we call it. First. <laughs> so, <laughs> love that. Okay. Yeah, so a lot of people stay that. stuck in preparation too, but preparation is where, like, I tell my friends, "Hey, I'm going to get fit." Like, you know, I, 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 okay. Then the next stage is action. Action is when you're all in. So action is when I'm actually hitting the gym a couple days a week. Action is when I am doing it. Even when it gets hard, change is always hard. So if you do it once, if I go to the gym once and then I'm like, ah, I'd rather hang out with Sluggo. Well, you can, you can revert back into any of the, I could go right back to contemplation or to preparation. Okay. But action is when you're doing it and you're doing it like for a while, like maybe say six months or something like that. Even when it gets hard, I stay the course of action and then maintenance so, when, okay, first one, we're in action. Like, okay, going to the gym. All right, it sucks. I don't really want to go this morning. I'm going to go. But it, like, takes a lot of mental energy because it's, like, it's not a fully formed habit. Maintenance is the last stage. And maintenance is where it's, like, going to the gym is just a part of who I am. It's my new identity. It's just what I do. Like, there's no way I don't go to the gym. Mm. So those are the five stages. And if you can recognize where you are, then you can ask yourself, do I want to change? Do I want to move my stage? And if the answer is no, because eating the chocolate cake or smoking, whatever it is, works out fine for you, then don't move your, you know, we don't need to change. Even when other people tell us that we need to change, if we're fine with the results. Um, And most of us will not 
move our stage of change unless there's a payoff to getting into a different stage. So this is what's fascinating to me is say that you have a friend who is in an abusive relationship and and every day they're whining to you about how their partner beats them or is doing whatever. So you make a list of 35 reasons why their partner sucks and why they should break up with them. And you show them the list and they're like, you know what? You're right. Those 35 reasons are totally valid. I should break up with them. Except for that, my one reason for staying, I love them. Mm. I love them. So if you make a pros and cons list, that's nice, but it could not just be 35. It could be 135 reasons to change why you want to change your life to get out of prison or whatever. Ask yourself, what is a payoff to my current behavior? Why am I doing this? And like a lot of people who are addicted to drugs say, I hate being addicted to drugs. I'm sick and tired of this. I don't want to do this anymore. Well, obviously, that feeling that you get when you get high is way better than the 135 things on the list of changing. The high is just better. And that is your choice. And that is okay. So until you decide that the high is not that great, you're not going to change. Until something on that list of 135 reasons to change becomes more important to you. So the day that your freedom becomes more important or feels sweeter or better than the high, you're going to keep getting high. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. 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 Good, because you place yourself on that, uh, it's kind of like a circle uh, with yeah. all the different stages. And then, you know, you can just say, oh, what do I need to get to the next stage? What does the next stage yeah. look like? Yeah. Do I And do I want to go there? Am I ready? Mm. Am I confident? Is it important enough to me? Yeah. And then, and then one more thing on that is that at any point, we can like lapse back into an old one and to like, say I want to get clean from drugs. Well, then I have a, a relapse I use again. Okay, that doesn't need to be the end of the world. Mm. Instead, what about using the word recycle? So instead of relapse, recycle is when we can learn something from it. So, okay, I I made a bad decision. Does that have to shoot me back to pre-contemplation? No. Mm. Mm. You can get right back into action as long as you choose to stay in action. Mm. If you choose to keep doing drugs over and over, you're not relapsing anymore. You're just using. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that's like my cool nugget that I just, ah. you know, yeah, I, I really like this. So I, th- I think about it all the time now yeah. about my life. So hopefully it's helpful. Okay. What else do you guys want to ask? I well, I love, I, I, before we go on, I love the word recycle. I love the way you put relapse, you change relapse with recycle. Such mm. a simple change of words. It's just a reframe. Yeah. yeah? And, and it's such very different words, but very different ways of approaching it and very different for a person to actually explain it mm. and not be so hard on themselves. A recycle is so different because a relapse has that word in it. it it's, 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 a, it's aligned to that word, means failure maybe in their head or means I'm back to where I started, where recycle is like, ah, you know, you're just going around again. You're just going around again and you start and you keep going because you've done all the good stuff. You're just recycling. I love it. Well, we work, we work with an awesome trauma expert and an addiction and recovery expert at Hustle 2.0 who have really helped us to shape our curriculum. And we don't even call it relapse now. So we, we call it either repeat or recycle. So because relapse is shaming, I, and I actually use this word on the podcast because it's so common, I kind of... I'm going to forgive myself for using that word right now. Repeat is, so the word relapse means to to revert back into a bad state of being. Mm. And that like kind of 
okay, right back to the shame. You know, just like if you call yourself an addict or a three-time loser or whatever these labels are, like instead of an addict, you can be a person who has an addictive disorder. And you might repeat a behavior without recycling, but recycling is the, the, the awesome twist to it yeah. where you learn and you change. So anyway. Yeah. 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 Language is yeah. so important. And I, and I know, it is. I know um, you guys at Hustle 2 prefer to use uh, incarcerated people like we do as well. Um, and now, you know, we've got friends in the, in the homeless sector that, that refer to it as not a homeless person, but um, a person experiencing homelessness. There you go. Um, yeah. Yes. So, and yeah. So because at the end of the day, the person that it affects the most is the person going through it because they, yeah. you know, they see themselves as that. They don't see themselves yeah. as a person. Mm. Yeah. And I think some people might be like, oh, the world is getting so sensitive yeah. with all this language stuff. Okay. I, I might agree with that. But what I would triple dog dare challenge you on is change some of the way that you talk to yourself and see if it doesn't change the way that you act. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's a great because point. Because that's, that's why I don't want to kill myself anymore. I talk so nicely to myself now. Yeah. And when I do good things, I'm like, I am awesome. Yeah. Look at me. I love me. <laughs> <laughs> I really do that. Yeah. And it works. I really love me as a result. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So good. Right. Yeah. Hey, hey um, and I'm just quickly, I love Mavericks as well. I love that you insert that word like you call the the problems of Maverick. I love that too. Um, with Hustle 2.0, you know, obviously – doing amazing work where do you what's what's the next stage for that like obviously it's you know in all these prisons in america i get a little bit of a sense that you're very um a person who likes to you know have lots of good goals and likes to try and you know do new things can and likes to keep moving so is global is it is it already going overseas is that one of the, the parts you want to do or what what's what's the vision for it over the next 12 months or, or, or beyond where where would you like us to be mick Ah, yeah. Well, judging by the results you have, them pretty much everywhere will be good, I reckon. But uh, maybe Australia will be good. You never know. But that Australia, Australia would be an extremely natural fit, and it would not be difficult for us to do at all because our curriculum is written in English. So right now, Mm. serving in any country where the people incarcerated there speak English and can read English, it works. Now we might have a couple differences in slang or whatever, but I'm sure, I'm sure anyone uh, over there can figure it out very easily. And so we would absolutely love to serve in Australia or any country that speaks English. People can order the curriculum on our website at hustle20.com. Now, internationally, there are higher shipping fees. Um, But if you have correctional agencies that are interested uh, overseas, we would love to talk to them. And it's, it's not like a heavy lift. It's not a it's not a hard thing to do. We could do it next week. I'm not exaggerating. It's a very easy. And the cool thing for any correctional people who are listening is that um, this program is run as an independent study, like in-cell program. So most programs require you to give passes and have security and lots of organization. Here, you're handing out the correspondence books and the people in the program naturally will form small groups and discuss the material with themselves. You can make it more complicated if you really want to, to put more, uh, mm. impose more on your staff time, but you don't need to. Uh, it's a very independently run program that is beloved by 
our populations. So we would love, I'm, I'm ready. And by the way, I have, I have, I've, I've thrown around the fact that I've been in international prisons. I have worked in mm. uh, a little bit in uh, uh, Brazilian prisons and in Rwanda too. And right. um, yeah. And so I don't know, Australian prisons. I haven't been there yet. Well, hopefully someday. That, but it's it's interesting, and and I obviously would have thought like you know, um, you look at it, you look at uh, Europe, you look at England and, yeah. and Britain as well. Yeah. And, how many how many well, books but, you want? How many people uh, do you have over there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've a few, we've a few, yeah. and we we might need to all change. Right. The, we, we might need to bring a new word in for. Although I do like Sluggo, we might need to bring in a, an Australian name in for Sluggo. But actually, well, I think he could. He think he could work too. Yeah. You know, right right now we uh we, we people from all over the U.S. are contributing to our stories how cool would it be to have some mm. some folks from over there from from over yonder yeah. uh <laughs> contributing <laughs> some stories about what it's like to be incarcerated there or what they're facing over there mm. i would love that and I, the thing about what you do what really draws us to is this it's not too many times you think you know, organizations or programs working with people and incarcerated people or whatever there's a temptation or there's they probably don't even know but it can be very it can be very talked down to. It can be very preachy to, you know, about like this age change and all that. Whereas yours is really co-designed and, and brought up, you know. So the people that, you know, that, that the program really has the, the biggest impact on are the people that are writing in and helping you develop the program. Like the, it's brilliant that the name came from it. Like everything from the name to actually the content is being co-written um, as well, which makes it so much, I think it makes it golden to me because when you're reading it, you reading it from someone, you're reading it from someone's story, experience, lived experience, which is such an important thing, I think, to capture and to connect people to what it is and feel it. So I think that's something that really interests me is that co-design is that, you know, working with the people you serve as the people who are actually going to help you to bring this to, to you know, to light. Thank you. And I would just say that, that our curriculum is written by a whole bunch of committed, very broken humans. Broken humans meaning me, meaning my incarcerated co-authors, meaning uh, we have a Stanford uh, MBA professor who writes in it. We have uh, trauma experts. We have uh, correctional experts. We have some of the top employers. So we are all messed up, and our curriculum uh, just shows our humanity. We bond in in our humanity, and yeah. great things come of it. Kat, just really quick before we before we wrap it up, because it's been you know we could talk to you for forever. But before we wrap it up. Who supports you? Like you give so much, yeah? And you continually, you can see you just give so much. Even talking about it, you can see, people can't see, we can see like there's a passion in you, you know, there's a, just a determination and drive to make change. And um, that comes sometimes with a toll, you know, and you spoke about, you know, your past and stuff like that. But I'm just thinking about it in the present now as well. Who supports you? What do you put in place so that you, you know, can continue to have that support around you, whether it's a lot or whether it's a little, to continue to let you to be who you need to be for the people that you serve. Oh, thank you for asking that. So yeah, I would say that for the first like 15 years of my career or so, I was uh, so like give, 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 always giving and depleting myself. And what one of my therapists said to me about that is, 
take in, take in a big breath and hold it for as long as you can. And I did. And after like, I don't know, a minute or whatever, I exploded my breath. And he said, that's like what you do in life because you don't take care of yourself. So especially since scandal number two, I now am huge on self-care. And so I, I have an amazing group of friends, mentors. I am so quick to ask for help. Um, I, I, another thing that this therapist said to me is he said, um, when you were a child and you had needs, what did you do with those needs? And I was like, I stuffed them, you know, like I didn't feel like others would meet my needs as a child. So I learned to be a very independent Rambo type chick and I would take care of them myself. He gave me this assignment and he said, I want you to come up with a weekly neediness report where, you write down at least three needs a week and call a friend and say that you need something from them. And I laughed in his face. Like I exploded with laughter when he said that. It seemed so foreign to me. Well, I've been doing this practice for years now. And I, so I have people who love the snot out of me, no matter what I do, no matter what I go through, I'm very entertaining for them. Um, I have some very stable friends who live vicariously through me. But another thing that I do on self-care, I'm a maniac. So if I don't uh, have good boundaries, then I will like exceed everything. So I measure how much I sleep. I measure how much I work out. I measure what I eat. I have a certain number of cheats. I'm like, I am very disciplined and I love it because I thrive with discipline. But then the other thing that I do, and in our trauma course, in our book, we talk about uh, art therapy. And um, it's only been in the last couple of years that I've learned that I'm an awesome artist. And I started out sewing and then I learned to quilt. And now just lately, I've been teaching myself to paint and to draw. And I can't even believe it. Like, I mean, I thought I would have said I can only draw stick figures. And so I, I do art for like about two hours a day on a weekday. And I do it all weekend. I'm I am obsessed. And this is a lot of my self-care that keeps me whole, loving, and happy. It's what I dream about. Yeah, that's amazing. Awesome. And art is such a crazy thing. I've got, like, one of, just you just brought to mind, one of my, like, childhood friends, one of my really closest friends is, you know, um, recovering, out, like, you know, alcoholic. And, and you know, and, and he, he, he paints. He paints a lot. You know, and that's his time. And he sent me a painting last year, and it was one of the. I have it in my house. It's one of my favorite things because he can just see, you know, what it's what it's done from as well, and he just continues to paint. So it's so therapeutic for him, but it also, yeah, it's just something that he's really pushed himself into. I'm, so, yeah, I, I'm so that. proud of this look. I'm going to show you guys this, and maybe you could. I don't know if you can show it to your viewers or whatever. But that's a that's a quilt that I. This is a quilt that I painted for my yeah. brother. That's him and his dog in the ocean. Wow. But. Anyway, I, I would have never known that I could have done this if I didn't try. So to anyone listening, I challenge you to spend 10 minutes trying to just sketch something. And here's one more thing on that. When you do, watch the voice, listen to the voice in your head. Because if the voice goes, you suck, that's not as good as so-and-so, da-da-da-da-da. Is that representative of how you might be speaking to yourself whenever you take any risk to change anything? So when mm. I draw, I'm like, wow, this is really good. You've never yeah. even been trained. Look at you. <laughs> I talk to myself like I'm like a parent of my own three-year-old self. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'm like, whoa, I am good. And then I want to do it more. And I turned out to be quite good. So anyway, oh, I love it. that's what I do. Awesome. Hey, um, before we wrap up, my last question that we asked, when it comes... 
comes you guys are good. You guys are really good. <laughs> no, we appreciate that. Yeah. We appreciate that. So yeah. um yeah, if you can put that out there to the world that we're really good, that would be that would be fantastic. You're okay, really good and I'll post this. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> That's good enough for us. That's good enough for us. Okay. Um, um I asked this to everyone and um the reason why to give you a background, the reason why I asked is because a lot of the young people like we use this podcast when we started to to really share the voices of the people that we work with and, and we support and to humanize um them is really what we, we go about. About, about doing um, and not everyone we always talk about not everyone grows up when they grow up and they commit crimes or do whatever that, that's not what they were you know when they're born that's not what their you know their goal in life is you know and some people times I think people forget it and some of our listeners might forget it and people in society forget it that sometimes when you're facing someone that's done something bad they always they weren't always they're not programmed like that you know it's 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 something that's you know that's happened to their lives there's reasons behind it so what we wanted to do was kind of you know with this question was at the very start was to let people into these young people's minds about where their life and where their ambition was but we decided we asked that once you ask it once you have to ask every guest and we get just so amazingly different answers because it makes people think a little bit but it's a very simple question um so Kat when you were growing up what did you want to be Many things. Uh, it shifted. So I was born in Canada and I moved to the U.S. when I was seven. And when my dad told me we were moving, I said I didn't want to move to the U.S. because I could not become the president of the United States because I was not American born. <laughs> and my dad is an inventor. And my dad said, he basically addressed, why are you blocking out that possibility? I want you to think creatively about this problem and get back to me. So I did. And then I came back to my dad and I said, okay, I've decided that I want to become a lawyer so that I can change the Constitution of the United States so that I can become the president of the United States. <laughs> and my dad went around introducing me after that as a future president of the United States. Well, I have zero political aspirations. I'm not yeah. a fan of politics in general. But that's just to give you a little bit. Of, then I wanted to become a doctor. Then I wanted to become a teacher. Then, you know, so it just it evolved yeah. over time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's great. We we love the answers as well, and um, the people give because yeah, it just makes them think at that time and, and what they wanted to be, and, and when then suddenly you see where they are and what they're doing. So um, yeah, so we really thank you, Kat. Like it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for sharing because I know um, some of it, like you know, our listeners will be like, will really get so much out of it as well, and. And you speak with such honesty, but you you know vulnerability and everything else, and and then you know you just see this amazing strength that you have and the amazing impact that you're having as well. So we're we're so um, grateful to be able to spend you know whatever time we did um, talking to you and to hear about the amazing work that you're doing. And I am. Um, that 2019, when I was writing down that development plan, I actually did get that scholarship, but then the pandemic got in the way. So I hope at some stage next year, 2022, when tra when they let us travel out of Australia, um, that I will come and visit, you know, um, John, and I wanted to come and see Hustle 2.0 in person, and um, because yeah. it would be just such a fascinating thing to see how you're doing it uh, up close as well. So hopefully someday that can happen, um, and we can see I can see firsthand the amazing work you do. But in the meantime. Um, we're so grateful that you didn't cancel yourself and uh, we're so grateful that you know you continued to bounce back and, and continue to show strength to do the work that you do so thanks again for sharing that with us 
Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I Maybe this could lead to Hustle 2.0 in Australia or wherever. So if you're listening, please write us, hustle20.com or my, my personal site is cathook.com. And we would love to hear from people. I It is such an honor to me to get to do this work and to get to know the, the lives of some of the people that we're serving. And I am deeply grateful to both of you, Mark and Mick, for your advocacy and for for taking the time to produce this experience that leads to good resources in people's lives. So thank you. Thank you. Thank now you. To all of your audience, it. thank you for your patience with my long answers. Uh, <laughs> well, that will go down in history. That'll be our longest answer, Kat. We'll have to put the challenge there to Woo! see if someone can beat it. I, I don't think they today. will. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. we, we're all about records over here in Melbourne, but they're usually for lockdown. So that was a better record. So yeah, it's all good. Um, thanks again. Thanks so much. If anything in today's episode has raised any issues for you or someone you know, head over to our website for a full list of services that may help at ymcarebuild.org.au under the podcast tab. This podcast was produced by Mick Cronin and Mark Wilson. Editing done by Mark Wilson.